0: Well hello everyone, I'm Roger Highfield, I'm the Director of External Affairs of the Science Museum. Welcome to the home of human ingenuity on what's turning out to be uh, an amazing day for the museum. We have just launched uh, our biggest gallery, Information Age, for more than a decade. Uh, It's going to mark the start of the biggest redevelopment of the museum since it was established more than a century ago. Not only that, the gallery was opened up by Her Majesty the Queen. Not only that, we witnessed, yes, the first tweet by a reigning monarch in the museum. (laughs) (laughs) The Queen tweeted, yes. So it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce this distinguished panel for this debate, Information Age, Evolution or Revolution. There will be a bit of time for Q&A from you at the end. I should start off uh, with Herman Hauser, serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist who played a key role in the Cambridge phenomenon, the acorn arm, uh, who's founded or co-founded the Amadeus Capital Partners Limited. We have Baroness Martha Lane Fox, although Martha tells me to drop the Martha, so I'm getting a little bit confused. Board member of M&S, of Channel 4, founder of lastminute.com, uh, we have Mo Ibrahim, mobile communications entrepreneur, best known for Celltel in Africa, who set up the Mo Ibrahim Foundation to encourage better governance in Africa. We have Jim Glick. I called him James Gleick for years. He is Jim Glick, in fact, best-selling author of Chaos and more recently The Information. And last but not least, Tom Standage, who's well-known for his use of historical analogy in science and business writing, written some brilliant books like Writing on the Wall and the Victorian Internet. In his day job, he is the digital editor of The Economist. I shall now hand over to Tom.
1: Thank you very much, Roger. Brilliant. Well, I'm uh, very pleased to be here today with such a distinguished panel. Um, How many of you have actually had a chance to go and look at the Information Age exhibits already? Uh, a reasonable number, it's quite hard to tell with the light. So, uh, what I think is great is that this museum has long had the best history of technology exhibit in the world in the form of the Making of the Modern World Gallery, and uh, it now also has the best uh, history of communications exhibit in the world. There really are some amazing things in there. So, uh, to discuss the history of communications and the present and the future of communications, I'm very glad to be joined by our illustrious panelists, um, and uh, I've arranged them in order of revolution, as it were. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to start with you, Herman. French. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, it's, still, it's still too early to say. Um, I'm going to start with you, Herman, uh, where, where uh, you represent many things here, uh, obviously, but let's start with the, uh, the personal computer revolution of the 70s and the 80s, which for many people in this country, uh, you are... Uh, bound up very closely with. I am one of them. How many people in this room had a BBC Micro? Yay, BBC Micro. How many people had a Spectrum?
0: <laughs> uh, As yeah. well. That, <laughs>
1: honestly, didn't have proper BitMac graphics. <laughs> how many people had a Commodore
2: 64?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so the good. BBC Micro obviously was, the, was the, the, the finest of this group and it has had a great influence on, on, on many people. But really, what I wanted to start with asking you how that communications revolution as it turned into. um, How did that feel at the time? How did you initially see that this was going to be something big?
3: Well, the reason why we formed uh, Acorn Computers at all uh, was because we felt it was all happening in microprocessors. Uh, That was our business plan, uh, very detailed. And (coughs) uh, amazingly, it turned out that actually it was the microprocessor in the end that, that became the biggest success of Acorn with ARM. But in the beginning, the way it felt uh, was uh, that there was a, a, a revolution happening uh, on the back of a, a program that the BBC put out that some of you might remember called When the Chips Are Down. And this program painted a future where there might be one chip, and they called it a chip, what, what they really meant was a microprocessor, when there might be one chip in every household. <laughs> so a uh, little... Uh, Did they know that, of course, now we have hundreds in in every one of our households? And the fascination was that something which was the uh, prerogative of PhD students in computer labs would be available for the ordinary man in the street. And at that time, the BBC then, uh, in its wisdom, decided to educate the nation about computing, and that was the start of the... BBC program, and we were lucky enough to be chosen to to produce the BBC Micro. But it's very difficult to to, uh, remind you, those of you who are old enough to have lived through that period, that people at 6 o'clock in the evening would return from the pub to sit in front of the the, uh, television to watch the the, the computer program. So it, it was really a sort of a national... Uh, uh, excitement about finding out what the future will
1: hold once these chips appear everywhere. But there was also a great deal of misunderstanding about what I mean. No one could have understood it. But I remember um, a friend of my, an elderly friend of my mother's coming round to my house shortly after I got my BBC micro, and she saw there was a computer in the corner of the room, and she assumed that it was a sort of science fiction omniscient computer and it knew everything about her, could tell her what her gas bill was. That was what she thought computers did. They were these far away things that knew everything. So this was really a a matter of changing how people thought about computers, that they were things you really could interact with.
3: Yes. Well there were people like Cl- Clive Sinclair who claimed that the z 81 could uh, run a nuclear power station I remember <coughs> uh, but <laughs> I failed to notice that one. Uh, uh,
1: I- I- yes, well. Oh dear. So what a good thing he, they didn't try it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it <was> meant to <coughs> but be. it wasn't about nuclear power stations it's about in the home isn't it? Yes, but it's also
3: um, at that time as now there is this big debate of what computers will be able to do eventually and what they can actually do now. And if you remember, that that debate actually started with Turing. He was one of the first people who, of course, imagined uh, artificial intelligence and imagined that uh, a computer could could be an artificial brain. (coughs) Artificial intelligence then got a very bad name because it was overhyped and people said, well, we'll have... Uh, a world chess champion uh, by the autumn. I remember I almost changed my PhD from physics to artificial intelligence because I thought I was going to miss out on it if I didn't didn't engage immediately. Well, as it turned out, it took another 20 years to have a world uh, chess champion, but we have one now. And uh, a lot of the original visions of what computers will be able to do uh, are finally uh, becoming reality, in particular... Uh, I'm very excited about machine learning programs, which are both very, very exciting and a very fundamental change from programming to teaching computers. But they're also frightening because they will be able to do things that maybe we don't agree with.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. So this is uh, a repeating trope, I think, um, that the the short-term impact of these technologies is overhyped. And yes. Overestimated, and the long-term impact is is underhyped. Exactly, Martha. Right. This is a good opportunity to come to you because this is exactly what happened. Overhyped in, um, in the <laughs> it, well in the dot-com bubble. Because it, it, in the end, it did turn out that there was something to this internet thing after all. Mm. But um, did you have to convince people um, initially when you got involved with it that this wasn't this wasn't a fad? And yes. how have you seen that sort of transition?
2: It was. It's extraordinary now. Whatever it was, 97, 98, when we com and our whole mission was forget us or our business. It was about convincing people that the internet wasn't going to blow up, and the web, on top of that, I guess, more at that. What date. were people
1: worried about? That, they, that someone just would come and turn it off. Or turn like it that? off.
2: That credit card details would be stolen. That it wouldn't work. That it just, it wouldn't. It didn't add up. That somehow you could put something in over here and something would end up on your doorstep over there or that you'd go to a hotel and they would actually know that you had a booking or that you would buy a book and it would actually arrive through the post. These just seemed like quite fantastical things even then. And even though it started in the U.S. and obviously there were U.S. commerce sites that had come to the U.K. It was still a landscape that was highly skeptical. Amazing in the U.K., I know but it was an audience that needed to be convinced that this was a technology... Well, we are
1: generally up for trying new technologies in this country. I mean, this this country is often used as a test bed. So Spotify, for example... Not a British company, I think Swedish. Yes, launched Swedish. here first because we're a bit like Europe, a bit, yeah, like America, bit like America, up for trying new things. And if it all goes wrong, we're not that big a country, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and so you, you get that repeatedly. <laughs> so how did you get over? Um, how did you get over the fact that there was this scepticism? Um, was it something you did, or was there a general broader shift? It
2: was part us and part a broader shift. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I think I went to the opening of every envelope for about five (laughs) years, and I just talked about how I really felt that this technology was going to be exciting, and so if you imagine that happening for a number of entrepreneurs, in the space, it was a kind of collective excitement and the media picked up on that. And it was a big part of it being amplified. You know, we talk a lot about the Twitter sphere and things on Facebook and how things, you know, get on social media and everyone will pick it up. Well, at that date, there was no social media. So it really was a question of getting the mainstream media to start writing about this go stuff. With it. And it was hugely important when you, know, you got an F- article in the FT or somebody put something on the BBC mm. News because that gave this whole sector credibility and gave the technology credibility. So. That was, that was really our mission. Was I to wanted
1: to ask to what extent Amazon, because um, Amazon for many people was the thing where, and we're seeing this now with the sharing economy, with Airbnb yes. and so on, that if one company... Um, delivers the goods and shows mm. that typing your credit card number into a web browser is not an act of insanity mm. that that then has a halo effect yes. that drives everyone else was that was that something that helped you i, I can't remember what the timing was had yeah, amazon no, become
2: you're absolutely right amazon had just bought a british right. small relatively small british book website and we're just launching in here and you know we always said and brent was brilliant at saying this we're not going to invent this stuff let's just copy what they do and if you can just give me a two minute anecdote because We did copy their fast buy function when they put it live on the website, you know, the one click amazing piece of magic, which still gets me every time. We thought we'd been so smart copying this. This idea that you click things once and it buys buys something, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science, but we did get into, I got into huge trouble because a man called our customer service team absolutely livid, screaming like you wouldn't imagine. Justin, a beautiful, wonderful head of customer services, came down to my desk and said, "Okay, you're so clever, you (laughs) sort out this guy. took me about ten minutes to work out that it was the fast-by function that we'd copied off Amazon that was the problem, because last time he'd bought a holiday with his wife, this time, maybe someone different. And all the details had gone to his home address.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. This is where technology (laughs) meets culture. It's uh, (laughs) fantastic. Um, And in retrospect, um, what do you think um, we had the the implosion of 2000 to 2001. What do you think the problem was? Because in the long run, the optimists were proved right. So what was the problem?
2: I think the problem was very simple. People were betting on every company as a winner, and it was just massively overinflated. And as you know, you have to bet on 90, win- 90 companies to get one winner, let alone probably 200 companies to get a company that will be around 10, 20 years later. So it was just massively over inflated in terms of investors racing now the excitement was gathered so it was always going to blow apart a bit and you just had to plug away and keep building the company.
1: There is another more deterministic um, uh, solution I, g- I agree with you that that's definitely part of it but there's also the question of whether um, broadband took longer to show up than people expected and a lot of this was predicated on quick and easy access was that a factor as well?
2: Uh, I don't that, I don't put that in the mix of our own lastminute.com okay. history. Of course, in the macro expectation, yes. But in our experience, you know, we were working on a site, as others were, where we were watching the homepage fill up like this, which now seems remarkable. But people, when they saw 99 planned flights to New York, were prepared to wait for that page <laughs> to load. So <laughs> the product, if the product was compelling enough, the broadband didn't really matter. Right. And so I, you know, it's, a mixed, it's a mixture of things, but I don't think that was the key thing for us.
1: Okay, brilliant. Now, meanwhile, in the rest of the world, Mo, I wanted to bring you in here. If you were an alien on the moon, which is very (laughs) much the perspective the economist often writes from, the view from the moon, (laughs) um, the most interesting thing that happened in the first decade of this century, I think, think, was not actually the spread of the internet in the rich world. It was the spread of mobile phones Mm -hmm. in the developing world. Because, we already had communications of some kind. We've seen, you know, if you go and look at the gallery, we had fax machines and, um, and uh, phones and so on. And now we've got mobile phones and the internet and so on. But um, in the developing world, this was the first time that people had been on the communications network at all. Um, and you were instrumental in, in uh, promoting the, uh, the spread of mobile phones um, in many African countries. When did you first realize there was an opportunity and this wasn't just something for, for rich yuppies in the West?
4: Uh, Right. I actually come from the industry, uh, so I'm I'm not a businessman. I was an accidental businessman. I'm a technologist, and uh, I was doing research at uh, Birmingham Field Mobile Communications, long before the age of cellular. And uh, I I was recruited by BT to to actually design the first cellular network in the UK. And I'm very pleased to see Steve here, who used to be my boss in uh, in BT. (laughs) The guy with white hair over there, and uh, I hope I'm not the cause of that white hair. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so I, I come from the Elders, I'm a techie, yeah. sort of, you know. And, uh, but what, later I left BTR, which was a horrible bureaucracy, and, and I, I started my own uh, company, which went very well. We sold that, or got a lot of money, and then I decided to invest in Africa. The problem in, in, in doing Africa, as everybody, because my first company specialized in designing GSM networks. We designed probably half the GSM networks in Europe. Uh, we did uh, Shanghai, we did Hong Kong. It was really a nice operation, uh, uh, consultancy and software. Uh, my customers were the CEOs of all the mobile, companies, so I'm with, very much in the industry. And I noticed why everybody's fighting for licenses uh, in Europe and elsewhere and paying a lot of money, nobody was trying to go into into Africa. If they were pulling out of Africa at that point, uh, in fact, were no, Nobody was trying to. told to go in Africa. Africa, at that time, 950 million people. And a continent which is huge to just have a... You know, when you look at the map, at the Google map, doesn't give it really the right uh, kind of, 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 of justice. Uh, you can take... Uh, all of Europe, United States, Canada, India, China, and put all of them in Africa, and it still will be room for small places like UK and Scotland it's and the <laughs> no,
1: It's the Mercator projection that's the problem here, is it makes Africa look smaller, it makes Europe look bigger, and there's that very nice, the true size of Africa much, It's much, map, it's much bigger, really. And you can fit an awful lot more in there, yeah. Exactly. It's huge.
4: And it's not connected. There are three million funds in Africa, fixed funds. Three million mm-hmm. for 950 million, mm-hmm. million people. These three million funds, Mostly were in South Africa, in Morocco, in Egypt. Sub-Saharan Africa had nothing. DRC, 59 million people, in a country bigger than all of Europe, mm. had only 3,000 lines. Uh, so Africa was completely disconnected. And uh, so we talked to the operators, you know, our friends would say, "Look, guys, why do you try to?" And people go, "No, no, no, no." I mean, I I remember one without mentioning exact names, but the international director on, of, one, on, of, one, of, of one of the bill, <laughs> baby bills, anyway, oh, okay. which was very active in Europe at the time, and it was my customer, he said, more do you want me to go and invest in a country? Cause I was suggesting Uganda wanted to put his system in. Uh, a country which is run by Idi Amin. Are you out of your mind? I said, excuse me, Idi Amin, left the country 15 years ago <laughs> <laughs> and that was the international director of one of the you know so his answer was beautiful actually right? <laughs> he said mo i am the most sophisticated guy in our board <laughs> you know? and my y- company y- y- is a southern company half of our board members don't have passports even. now if i think i, I mean still in uganda what do you think my board <laughs> will think of you <laughs> Right, right. Okay, so uh, I found that <laughs> funny, but also offensive in a way. Uh, so was that fear of Africa, lack of knowledge of what to do for Africa, when Africa was crying to be connected, really. At the end, I guess it fell to African like me, because I'm an African, although I'm also British, and proud to be you know, British, but that's my roots, I'm a Nubian. And uh, we said, look, I mean, we have to do that. Uh, fortunately, because of the success of my first company, I think at that time we sold it close to 900 million or something like that, so we had some funds to, uh, to, 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 to invest. Uh, we decided to go and, 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 and do Africa.
1: But at this stage also, there was a new business model in the industry that didn't involve bank accounts and credit checks, and it had risen in Italy as a tax dodge. Uh, it was the prepaid mobile phone. Yes. So there was a tax on the fixed part is of the line suit? rental on the phone. And it was uh, in Italy, to get round the tax, they introduced prepaid. And um, they had very, very rapid adoption of this. And it is said, and I couldn't possibly comment as whether this is accurate or not, but going back to what you said, Herman, that it's because Italian men like to have one phone for the wife... <laughs> and another phone <laughs> in the other pocket for the mistress. And so this meant that mobile prepaid phones became very popular in parts of Europe and then among teenagers. But that was also a crucial part of spreading mobile phones in parts of the Absolutely. world where people don't have bank accounts. Ab- so w- we
4: could not have done it without that. No, not only bank account, there's no postal addresses. How, how are you going to send bills to, to people? So it has to be prepaid. And uh, it was a tough job. One of the problems people don't appreciate is that uh, to build a mobile, and we have been involved in building mobile networks in Europe, it's slightly much easier because you have the fixed layer already there, built by the incumbent, the pipes, the microwave links, the the, the cables, the satellite connecting, whatever. In Africa, you don't have that. So you have not only to build the mobility link, uh, layer you also have to build the infrastructure below that, so it was much more complicated. The second more difficult, most difficult thing is that banks don't want to talk to us because banks don't do Africa. the national banking system doesn 't do Africa, they love subprime in U.S. and all this exotic <laughs> stuff, but <laughs> How that successful really business well? in Africa, mm. no. Well, when we sold our company, we sold the company for $3.4 billion. Now,
1: this is amazing because w- this was the first time an African company had been sold for that kind of valuation Absolutely. that was not based on the extractive industries. Yes. So that was an amazing
4: achievement. And we had no debt. We had no debt. Can you believe a mobile company where three b- has has no, zero debt? because banks just don't deal with us. That was a real big challenge for us. So it was a tough job. So but how did you fund
1: the company then? How did you get it going?
4: As I said, I, fortunately, I had uh, a successful company before that. So we had some money to boot uh, in. Uh, we had a number of investors. And then we had about three investors in the company. All the employees of the company, I always believed that all the employees of any company must be shareholders. So my first company, 30% of the shares were owned by the employees. And my second company, the second large shareholder, actually, was our employees also. So we we, 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 we had some do-gooders, like CDC, you know, they came. And I made them 400 million pounds profit, which was wonderful. And uh, we had uh, OPEC from uh, U.S. We had... Uh, the German and FMO from Holland. We had those do goders, some of them. Right, but you didn't
1: have the African banks. That was the... Uh, that There's was no Africa, the African
4: bank banks, bank. hasn't capacity, but the international banking system, which had the capacity, will not do Africa.
1: Right.
4: Hello, Telecom, Africa? Sorry, you put the phone down. <laughs> 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 That's a, the fixed line phone. Yeah. Um,
1: and I wanted to ask you, finally, um, uh, you made this point that there was no fixed infrastructure that you could build on, so you have to use diesel generators and you have to use microwave links and so on but at the same time it 's I think very surprising to um, to people that you can actually start a mobile network business in a country with a civil war and I think you once said to me that even warlords want to call call their mums um, <laughs> yeah. so, so so what is it about telecoms that sort of transcends those sort <coughs> of uh, political uh, differences that you find
4: yeah uh, but- People need to understand the importance, you touched on it actually, the equity in a mobile call in Africa. You don't have fixed lines. You don't have postal service, effective postal service. Distances are huge. If you are a woman teacher in Kinshasa, you get engaged. You want to go and tell your mother. Your mother lives somewhere. It takes maybe 15 days. The trip involves animals, boats, lorries, you know, 15 days, you come back, your fiance is gone, (laughs) marry somebody else. (laughs) Imagine, what is the equity in a mobile call? It is huge. Mm. Uh, So it is a technology which really fitted the needs of the people, fitted the terrain, the landscape. You cannot build, put put cover lines across forest, across uh, deserts, across rivers, you cannot do that, it's huge. So that was a technology which can be really uh, sort of designed, sculpted around centers of population and main trunks of roads and very effective. Some countries, we started service within two months of getting the license. We had the service at the capital. So it is the speed of developing the service, matching the need of the people, made it. Today, in Africa, we have 550 million mobile phones. That is more than the number of mobile phones in Europe. Or the united states so at least in one one area at least we have a leg up you know yep. over you guys the fastest growing yeah. region for mobile in the world so it's a, a it's something where africa tops the
1: table in a good way um, and that's brilliant thank Through you change yeah yeah um jim i'd like to come to you so i, if, I hope you see what i did there i lined up the, the uh, three revolutions computers the internet and mobile does it make sense to see uh, the history of communications as this series of revolutions, or should we be thinking about it as evolution? Do you think?
5: Uh, I was waiting to see what I was doing at this end of the. Ah. the now the you row. know. I, I knew it couldn't be because I was see, the most modern. Yeah. So you're the you're the historian,
1: <laughs> science writer, giving us the overview.
5: All right, that's too that's too big a challenge. But well, I'll do uh, some of it. Then. But um, yes, evolution or revolution. Well, you yourself, Tom, if I may deflect. But uh, you, you demonstrated in your books, uh, starting with the Victorian Internet, how, how all of this stuff that we think is brand new was there before. I haven't and paid him to say we this. Are, so we are that. rediscovering <laughs> things. Uh, now, I don't remember when I first heard the expression, the annihilation of space and time, which is, you know, a c- cliché, but, uh, but, I'm, but I'm sure it had to do with the Internet. It was the, aha, the Internet is going to annihilate space and time. And I'm sure I thought very profound and true, and by the way, it is doing that, but, but that's a Victorian-era expression. The, during the telegraph era, people very self-consciously began to say this, the telegraph is going to annihilate space and time. They said it was the great highway of thought, a, a world wide web, Etc. All of these expressions arise in the mid 19th century. Exactly, and they were hyped. I mean, we've we've talked about whether there's short-term hype or long-term um, pessimism. It seems to me that there were, that both of those things existed in Victorian times. Both of those things have existed for the inventions of all of these technologies. I've been surprised again and again to discover how aware people were contemporaneously of the importance of information technologies. Now, going back to the printing press, people, people <coughs> knew that the printing press was, was creating a revolution. Well, some people did. Some people said, this is great, and there are always other people
1: who go, no, this is terrible because it changes the way we've always done things. Erasmus, at the time of the invention of the printing press, says, this is terrible, there are all these books, this means no one's reading the classics anymore. <laughs>
5: So, this always, you always get this split thing. Exactly. And yeah. just like the people today who are saying, oh, what do I need twi- Twitter for? Which yeah. a, a group it's of people up one that, that's today, one smaller today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Although, well, I won't say what, what the Queen is reported to have said about Twitter privately. Because I don't know, yeah. honestly. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> What, what? She said,
1: don't let Prince Philip anywhere near it. <laughs> no, she didn't. No, no, no. Where
5: I have settled, settled might be the wrong word, is, is in, an unba- in an unbalanced view that both the optimism and the pessimism tend to be correct. The people at the beginning of the dot-com boom, they weren't wrong. was—and There was never a time when they were wrong. There was never a time when I felt... The, oh yeah, the internet now—it's over. Because it's we should mention that you were also—you
1: also played a role in that because you started an ISP in in New York, the pipeline, which was subsequently uh, rolled into the ISP. Yes. So you, you are both a historian I, and a participant.
5: I did do that. I didn't know we were going to mention it. I was a very brief. Internet entrepreneur in between books, right. but it worked, okay, though, so. it worked out okay. It worked out. It worked out very well. But then I went and then I went back to real life, as I as, <laughs> I, then, as I then thought. It of is it. real life. No, if yeah. only yeah. I'd stuck with it yeah. like Martha, maybe yeah. I, maybe, maybe I could be a baron. No <laughs> <laughs> But you lose your first name, of <laughs> So, so it is the case that we've seen all of this before. And part of the, the great virtue of an exhibit like this, this new Information Age gallery is to show us the, the roots of, of today's tree, to show us the history, to show us how we got from there to here. But at the same time, even though people have always been saying, wow, the world has never been like this before, this is really something new. This really is something new. <laughs> and I'm very happy to argue if we want to have a debate the other side of it. Yeah, and well, we're going to come to that in a minute, which is whether innovation has slowed down. As oh, no, I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, I was going to what say th- no. What's really different about this I time? think this really is different. Uh, and, and we don't know how. We can't guess yet how. But things are changing so fast, and a thing is emerging that I believe promises to be genuinely unlike all the other stuff before. And that thing is... I don't want to say a world brain. That's almost a hundred-year-old idea anyway, and that comes in with the telephone, if not the telegraph. But um, a a vision of our interconnectedness as a kind of place, as a virtual space. Mm -hmm. The science fiction writer William Gibson invented the term cyberspace for use in a science fiction book in the 1980s, and he was just trying to make something up for the future, and he has said that he was inspired by seeing kids uh, in arcades playing video games and getting a, having the, the sensation that they were somewhere else, that their consciousnesses had vanished into a, a new kind of universe. Well, I, I genuinely believe that that universe exists now, and it's invisible in a lot of ways. It's invisible even after you go through the information age gallery, because it's partly in our heads, but it's in our collective heads. Excellent.
1: Thank you. So that is a sort of evolutionary um, model, but um, you think that the current uh, phase of the evolution is an even bigger step. Herman, I wanted to come back to you on this, because you've you've been through um, uh, more than one of these revolutions. Um, You're now... um, uh, also a VC, so you're looking for further revolutions. We'll come to that in a minute, but what I I really wanted to ask was, having participated both in home computers in the 70s and the 80s and then with the rise of smartphones with ARM, um, are there lessons that you can transfer from one revolution or evolution to the next?
3: Yes, I, I actually give this talk on the six waves of computing, starting with the mainframe, mini computer, workstation, PC, and then unexpectedly the smartphone. And what's the sixth then? <coughs> and the, uh, the 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 Internet <coughs> of Things and machine learning, and <coughs> uh, when. You know, you've been around for a while, like myself, and I've uh, used every one of the computers in in the six waves. You can stand back and see what characterized the waves themselves, and it's actually quite interesting. Every time at the beginning of the wave, there's a lot of competition. Towards the end of the wave, there is normally almost a monopoly position, like uh, IBM with mainframes, or, or a duopoly with Intel and Microsoft in the PC business. And at the end of the wave, that monopolist always misses the next wave. Invariably, there is not a single example of where the uh, the, the incumbent, uh, in this case, uh, you know, Intel and Microsoft, neither have any significant uh, market share in the mobile phone
1: business. And Nokia missed it too, of course. Interestingly,
3: uh, yeah, Nokia is a, is, a, is is a very special case, as is Apple, uh, because Apple has managed to make the transition from a PC company. Uh, uh, to a mobile phone company, but uh, um, adding to what you've just said about cyberspace, the the new thing that I see, which I, I spend a lot of my time on, both as a VC and you know as as, a, as an interested uh, uh, watcher of technologies, is this rise of uh, machine learning um, algorithms, which in my opinion will inevitably a lead to super intelligences uh, that will be a lot smarter than us. And, uh, you know, how do we deal with this? And um, will they humor us or not?
1: (laughs) Yes, will they put up with this? Um, So (laughs) if if that's the case then, and we do, and I like that model very much that you have these waves and by the end you get a monopoly, and then it kind of, we all fuss about the monopoly, and then it turns out to be irrelevant because actually the environment has changed. We saw that very clearly with IBM and very clearly with Microsoft. Where are we in that stage now? Are the worries about Google and Amazon, for example, as monopolists, uh, does that signal that we're at the end of this of this current phase? Uh,
3: <clears throat> well, as always, um, whenever you think you've figured it out how how these waves work, the game changes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the pattern that I've just explained to you might not be true for what uh, happens next because these patterns were sort of mainly based on, on hardware uh, uh, developments. And although there is a new wave coming with the Internet of Things, where because one of the interesting things that distinguishes waves is always at least a factor of 10 change in the numbers. Right. So we had hundreds of millions of PCs. We now have billions of... Uh, mobile phones, and we'll have tens of billions of um, uh, Internet of Things, but there is a strong shift away from uh, the importance of the hardware, which is is still at the bottom. If it, if, we, if we didn't have the Internet of Things, we couldn't build the new things that we're going to build on top of it. But the shift is towards uh, the data that they actually produce. So so dealing with the so the hardware uh, with kind of big works data. and is
1: a commodity, and we're now focused on what it can do more.
3: and what it can do. And that's why uh, I believe that you know, uh, uh, as I said before, the biggest thing since Turing is really this emergence of. Uh, uh, learning algorithms and the computer—you y- can teach the computer rather than programming it, and the computer becomes more of a pal than than a thing that is sort of subjugate uh, 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 that, that that you tell exactly right. what to do. they all, they I all want, figure I out. I want
1: to do. ask you a more specific version of the question about how you see the current environment as an investor. Where do you see the opportunities now? Are they still in computing and telecoms? Because I know you had, for example, a big investment in a biotech firm that you sold to Illumina. Uh, Do you actually see greater opportunities in other areas that build on digital technology like genomic sequencing, for example? Or is there still, do you think, mileage in the computing and telecoms industry?
3: There's absolutely mileage in the computing and intelligence industry. However, the biggest opportunity is healthcare. Uh, it's the first trillion-dollar market that I've come across. And it's interesting to explain Telecoms why it's... Telecoms is two trillion. Why it's a trillion, but...
1: Telecoms uh, is two trillion, surely? No, no, this is a trillion of... Uh, this is a new trillion. Oh, a different <laughs> trillion. Okay, fair enough. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and, and the way, the, way that the trillion appears is that if you just look at uh, the U.S., they spend about 20%, uh, uh, an inefficient 20% of their GDP on healthcare, And uh, so that's about three or four trillion And uh, at the moment, about 70 percent of that money is spent on people who are ill and you try to make them better. They're in hospital or in in, in some sort of treatment regime. And 30 percent is spent on preventing them from ever reaching the hospital. The expectation is that this will switch to 50-50 within quite a short period of time, say three to five years. Now that's a trillion dollar shift. This is the biggest shift of 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 money in any sector. From treatment, of prevention
1: is the idea, and diagnosis rather than.
3: Yes, you know. and uh, and uh, you you mentioned genomics. So there are there are a number of very clear trends in healthcare. One <clears throat> is the Internet of Things applied to to healthcare. You know all the, you know I've got many of these sensors on me, the heart rate sensor, there the are lots and lots of new sensors coming uh, along and the Apple Watch is a good example of that. But the much more interesting bit is actually the analysis of the data that all these uh, sensors will produce including uh, the, the, the genomics data I, you know, because of my investment in Selexa I was the fourth person in the world to know his own genome and it, it, it's, uh, now there are hundreds of thousands of people. So you've got it on been...
1: a DVD somewhere in case you ever want to look at some uh, of those base pairs. No, it's a USB stick. All <laughs> oh, right, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean well, anything. Well, That's the trouble, isn't it? You kind of go, hmm, what do I do with this? <coughs> have you had well, any
3: Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Merwald has this yeah. very nice yes. slide where yeah. he, he has uh, Madonna uh, on the same slide as one of her latest CDs, uh, mm-hmm. video CDs. And oh, right. she, she says, and, and he rightly says, that the video uh, CD. The in, her genomic yes. information is much less than her video CD, <laughs> because it's actually only
1: roughly a gigabyte. Have you, the, have you had gigabyte. any um, sort of uh, crunching done on this genome? Have you had any diagnoses or predictions made as a result of it? Yes. Oh. I, I don't want to sort of pry, but is there anything you can tell us? That uh, well, if you want to uh, hear the anecdote, of that, uh, uh,
3: I, I will tell you. So one of the first things <laughs> that uh, you look up is uh, a thing called APOE4, which is very strongly correlated with Alzheimer's. and you know, you sort of Well, that's an interesting thing. Who wants to know and who doesn't? About half the people <laughs> uh, in the world, uh, uh, there's the particular case of Huntington's career where, you, where there is no cure, and it's actually easy to find out whether you have Huntington's careers or not. And the statistics is that half the people want to know, and the other people prefer not to know. And I'm one of those who wants to know. So I looked this up, and I didn't have it, which was fine. Uh, but because I have my genome now at home, with my, my, my PC, whenever there is a new gene association study coming out, uh, I can just go to the computer, look it up, and see How if How handy I've, is that? If I've got it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there was a, um, another study from Cardiff that had three new <laughs> SNPs, as they call these single-nuclear, it had polymorphisms, uh, that were strongly correlated with Alzheimer's. So I looked the first one up, didn't have it, second one up, didn't have it. Third one, I had it on both my allelos. So I thought, what well, am I going to do? It. As um, luck will have it, two days later, I had lunch with the chief scientist of Illumina, who's one of the, the world experts on genomics, And I said, uh, you know, what do I do? Do I commit suicide? And she said, well... <coughs> Well, what's your odds ratio? And I said, well, it's point, uh, point 0.71. And he says, yeah, it's indeed very strongly correlated with Alzheimer's, but negatively. So it <laughs> <to> protects <laughs> you from Alzheimer's. So I didn't need to commute this. So, so. Brilliant.
1: <laughs> what a good thing you didn't. Right. Um, Martha, I wanted to ask you what your take on, today's, on the environment for today's entrepreneurs is. Are they thinking big enough? Are they, uh, do they have the same scale of ambition that they did in the, uh, in the dot-com boom? Because I see a lot of startups that are doing things like, here's a better system for expenses when you go to a conference. And here's a system that will allow any restaurant in London to deliver food to you. And I think, this is the best you can do? I want rockets that go to Mars. So are people thinking big enough?
2: I think everything is happening. I think, of course, there are people who are exploiting micro-opportunities, but there are also people who are exploiting macro-opportunities. There's a kind of characterization that in the UK we're not very good at scaling and we only think in tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions or trillions. Um, trillions are the new billions, apparently.
1: Oh right. But <laughs> I'm
2: not sure that's right. I think it's something slightly different, which is that it's very rare. You know, we'll go back to the same thing that exactly has happened in 2001. The companies that will succeed 10 years out, 20 years out, even longer, are very, very rare. People call them unicorns very often because that it's just an unlikely thing to happen, and I 100% believe that there is more focus now in the UK than there has ever been on technology entrepreneurship.
1: We just had these new numbers from the mayor a couple of weeks ago, saying there were more. There were 3,000 startups, yes. and there were more than Berlin. That was the main thing. That so we were the winners. <laughs> sure and, and <laughs> where, where do you place Britain in the kind of? pantheon of places that compete with silicon valley or does that is that an irrelevant way of looking at things now because innovation well, is global
2: i feel like a charlatan because this is not actually a world that i inhabit that much anymore i watch it from the sidelines a bit brent my co-founder in is all over this stuff right, i can right. tell you every single hot <laughs> what what does he say then i kind of <laughs> think it's quite important this stuff mm. but i don't think it's the only thing that's right. important you know of course it's fabulous to culture and foster innovation, encourage people to be entrepreneurs. and you know I had an incredible experience doing entrepreneurship myself, and I would want anybody to be given that opportunity as well. But it's not the only thing that fuels an economy. It's an important part. You know, middle-sized businesses are vital too. The thing that I think is more interesting in a way is the kind of digital capability of us as a country. You may know that's something I've worked on from both ends of the spectrum, You're know, looking at the top end, so kind of the latest computer scientists, the entrepreneurs, but right through to the other end as well. And I think that we can get slightly carried away with the sort of excitement about recreating Silicon Valley, which is impossible. Yes, it was And an actually leave off a bigger question, which is how are we faring across many, many different categories in, towards the modern world.
1: And what can we do in that area? I was at a conference in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago, and one of the speakers on one of the panelists was a representative of the government. Yes. And I said, and she said they were trying to encourage skills and so mm-hmm. on. I said, is there a country that has done a particularly good job mm-hmm. of trying to promote engineering yeah. and trying to encourage this? And she said, yes, Britain. And I was astonished because we're used to thinking that we're rubbish at everything now, except making shortbread and aero engines and um, arm chips and um, what's the other thing? Oh, yes, pharmaceuticals. We're quite good at that. Um, but apart from that, we're used to thinking that we're sort of slipping Mm. down the ranking. So what are we doing differently in this country?
2: Well I think they may be talking about the coding initiative in primary schools which again, I don't want to be a Mm. pessimist it's too early to tell. It's fantastic to have that embedded in the curriculum but there are lots of reasons why that still needs to be watched very closely and given resources because teachers are being asked to teach subjects they don't know anything about, and there's not been a huge funding model to support some of the changes, so it's a phenomenal shift in philosophy, but the execution well, but is it's kind of... It's the of delivery patchy. that matters. Yeah. People say
1: coding is the new Latin. Do you think that's fair? Uh,
2: I like Latin, so I think we need both. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <and> <laughs> I, like, I, don't, I don't think it's an either or. For me, what's amazing is just encouraging children, in the same way the BBC Micro did, to look under the bonnet and not be scared of it. Yeah. I can't code. I've learnt recently to code, but I couldn't code when I started last minute. mean, to keep a book of Java on my desk to scare the tech oh, team. Java
1: is horrible. Yeah, well. Do it did used to
2: scare the tech team, because they thought, "Can she do it?" I'm not sure. I better not bullshit <laughs> her too much. Um, but to back back to your question, I, I think we do okay, but we're not brilliant, right? So 20% of adults in this country aren't able to do four things online, and those are the things that save them money, more likely to get a job, be in education. This is the thing I feel passionate about. I think it's as basic as reading. And then if you move up the chain, we know we're going to need a million jobs in ICT by 2020, but we're not fueling that funnel, except right back at primary school age, which is a bit too late. So there's still a massive amount we can do to make ourselves more robust.
1: Mo, I wanted to ask you what your take was, because you are someone who has been an entrepreneur, both in this country and in other countries. What's your take on the current environment for entrepreneurs? And are we looking in the wrong place um, for innovation? Should we be looking to the developing world where the need to innovate perhaps is greater? We're just solving first world problems here.
4: I I think what's happening actually is is, uh, we forgot about globalization. The world around us are really changing. Some years ago, there was a cluster of western countries which has monopoly over technology, knowledge, education, etc. And then you have a huge swath of consumers, of whatever this uh, 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 elite uh, sort of producing. Things changed then because of, of course, globalization and uh, the rise of all these major economies everywhere, education. A lot of wonderful applications on the mobile phones are coming from Africa now. Mm-hmm. Africa have more uh, people uh, 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 really using e-banking. So than M-Pesa in Kenya is a classic example. Exactly, than any other country in the West. So people invented. Why? Because there is no retail banking on the ground. Yeah. The need is there. You see, the, the need create uh, 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 the entrepreneur and create the business. And I think that, that is the driver. So I think we are moving in a situation now where uh, no longer we're going to have a uh, uh, unipolar kind of, of, of world. Uh, we look for uh, one place in Europe producing wisdom and technology and all sorts of things. Things that starting to come out of China. It's going to come out of India, from Brazil, from Kenya, from different places. So it may appear for somebody sitting in Britain that we have less proportion. It is not. It's just we, you know, we, we are getting a more people involved in the process now uh, than just few of the fortunate ones.
1: My favourite example of this is that it's still easier to pay for your cab in Nairobi with your phone <laughs> than it is in New York. Yes. And um, Apple is trying to fix that, but it's still a very very long way to um, And um, if you were starting out now, would you still be looking at telecoms as the industry to go into as an entrepreneur, or would you be looking at? No,
4: well? I th- I think telecom. Is done. In it's, that <laughs> it's done. Our understanding done in in our understanding of, of of telecom. If that's what you're talking about, right. mobile phones or whatever. Okay. So what would you? We do? had so much penetration now in Africa. It's only a question of kilometers. It tends to become like a utility, like water, electricity, etc. That's not exciting. It's uh, strange enough. I mean, of course, we still invest. We are investing in Africa, and uh, we invest in other sector. I mean, the service industry in Africa is the strongest growing sector in Mm. Africa, actually. It's not not mining.
1: What have you been investing in? What sort
4: of thing? Uh, I've invested in uh, financial services, uh, retail services, uh, private health, hospitals. Uh, We invested in IT services. And... It's great to make so money. You guys, you guys should go and invest in Africa, by the way. That's yeah. where you make money. Don't don't invest in Lloyd's here and that stuff. <laughs> you go to Africa. Yeah, you heard it <laughs> anyway. here first, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you want to make money. You yeah, know, seriously. Go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm serious. It's not a joke. Okay. So uh, the, the highest rate of return of equity, actually, of private equity, is is in Africa. Right. That's the World Bank uh, report, and IMF reports. Uh, so these things were we in, I'm investing in, because. I don't think of myself now as an entrepreneur because I'm focusing really on the foundation. Yeah. So we're trying to do this reasonable investment which gets good return for us to fund our work on the foundation.
1: Right, And we should say what the, the purpose of the foundation is to essentially reward governments for uh, good governance. And you have this ranking that you put out every year uh, essentially, it's. a sort of inverse corruption ranking. And you also have a prize that you give to. Uh, leaders who uh, um, do the right thing and step aside at the end of their term, instead of changing the constitution and hanging <laughs> on for a bit longer, which is incredibly widespread still. So, hooray and more power to your elbow there. Um, yeah. James, what's your take on all of this? Sorry, Jim, I should say, because now we've been told James, you're not I James Clyne. J- okay, okay sorry. I'm only Thomas. I'm only Thomas when I've been naughty. So, uh, um, what's your take on this idea that um, uh, that innovation is? Uh, some people say it's you know the Robert Gordon thesis that it's slowed down. We've invented everything. Um, Mo thinks that
5: uh, that you know telecoms is, is done. Is that, is that fair? Haven't we heard that before, there in history? What Mo says is right, but, but no, not, in this, not because innovation has, has slowed down. I think the opposite. It has continued to speed up. I'm just trying to absorb the things that these smart people have been saying on my right, and I'm relieved that you haven't asked me for investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but um, we know that our machines are getting smarter, not our, and not just our machines, but the algorithms. <coughs> I, I don't think we need to worry, at least I'm not, Going to worry about a particular box getting smart enough to kick us out of the picture. We do need to be aware of how smart the the collective, box the collective is, environment is. is and it's, right. uh, this uh, people ask about the singularity. Yeah. We're in the singularity. The singularity is is what we're living through now. And and I think Martha is exactly right that um, and she put this so Finally. well. That I. You put it so well that I'm not going to be able to get it. I'm not going to be able to do you justice. But the place to look is not, um, is not at the major companies. It's uh, the digital economy is growing organically. It's growing all around us. The future is arriving in little scattered places and. Uh, and many of the important bits are going to surprise us. So when and, people look so at the, the big companies and say, oh, they're just rolling out a slightly faster version of last year's product, they're
1: missing the big picture, which is there's lots of stuff going on in the, in the underground.
5: Yes, not to say that there aren't smart things happening at the big companies. I don't, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, give up on Google or give up on Apple. Uh, but I'm saying that I think this is what Mo is, is, is getting at when he says that telecom is not the right place to look. Telecom is, telecom is, is, it works. is the way to, you thought about it a decade ago but now telecom is there and it's its not that it's gone it's that we can now afford to take it for granted and that what's happening now is going to it's going it's to build on the infrastructure that exists and yeah. we are going to become unconscious of it one of the I don't know if this is a digression or not but I, I was taken up short this morning looking at, through the gallery by one object from the past that that the curators that that Tilly has chosen to to share with us and it was a telephone book an actual telephone book <laughs> open to some page an artifact of the ancient past and and there's an and there's a helpful explanation from the curators that says the telephone networks made it necessary to assign each person a number and in order to find the person you had to look up the number and hence these giant printed books well I think that 's a brilliant example of forward thinking on the part of the museum, because everybody in this room knows what a telephone book is and has seen telephone books in real life, and they do i'm told still exist, but they 're almost gone we 're going to we will have forgotten those things, and the idea that there's already we can project ourselves into the near future and see how antiquated is the idea that an individual human being would have to turn to a printed volume made of dead trees to and to look flip up the a network address. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, in a future iteration of this museum, there will be a, an exhibit dedicated to alphabetical order. You've, you've just preempted one of my questions, which is what,
1: what, what will we need to add in the future? But let's, let's talk about the future, because the okay. theme that has come out from, uh, from certainly both you and Herman is that um, the next thing is machine intelligence and, and so on. Is that, do you think that's the next step? I would like to say I think that the trend is computers are getting smaller and closer to our bodies. Um, and I think the next thing is not wearables, but augmented reality, so painting data onto the world, using the data as the output mechanism and the input mechanism, the world as display and interface. The Internet as a layer of reality rather than a thing that you go to through a screen. So that's where I think we're coming from. But I want to hear what you all think is the, the next step. Your, your sixth wave is, in fact, machine learning and Internet thing? of Things. Right, OK. So you think it's just stuff getting things talking to each other.
3: Uh, not uh, just no, people. I agree with your aug- argument. Um, augmented reality being being a very nice addition to the user interface that we have with uh, 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 with the world, but I I, I don't think that is a, a sort of a step change, a fundamental change. The the reason why I keep com- coming back uh, to machine learning is because I feel it is one of those very fundamental changes that that happens very rarely. Uh, uh, you know that's why. I, I make these two statements. One is that hitherto we've always programmed computers. From now
1: onwards, we have the option of teaching computers. Or sort Uh, of gardening, where they just figure stuff out and you say, yeah, a bit more of that and a bit less of that. uh,
3: uh, Yes, but let me just sort of go into the teaching a little bit more because it's becoming more and more human-like. When you you teach kids, uh, you know, they might do it or they (laughs) might not. Uh, and the same thing will be true with computers. If you teach computers, you know, they might follow what you teach them or they might decide not to. So it's much less uh, deterministic than programming.
1: Well, there's the famous and example the of the military um, with the tanks. So they got a, a neural network and they taught it to recognize pictures with tanks in them. So they a whole load of pictures with tanks, whole load of pictures with no tanks. It got 100%, and then they gave it a new picture of a tank, and it couldn't tell if there was a tank there or not. It turned out that all the pictures of tanks they trained it with were taken on cloudy days, and all the pictures of no <laughs> tanks were taken on sunny days, and the neural network had actually learned the difference between cloudy and sunny. <laughs> this is the kind of problem we're going to have, surely.
3: Okay, well, here, here, here come my two criteria for how this is going to work. Uh, uh, one is, <coughs> for machine learning programs to really work well, two things have to be true. The easier one is actually the good training set. You've got to have a data set that's really representative of what you want to teach the computer about. The second is a lot harder. The second is you've got to tell the computer what is a good thing and what is a bad thing, and you'll get what you wished for. So uh, there are a number of examples. Uh, One is a recent uh, e-commerce example where the guy said, well optimize the gross margin for me, which seemed a you know, mm. perfectly good optimization thing. Of course, the computer immediately shut down all the small deals, <laughs> because, uh, and yeah. the revenue went down. Yeah. So you get what you wish for, and uh, actually <coughs> articulating cleverly what you actually want the computer to do at a high level is very, very hard. Let me make one sort of last... B- articulate one belief which I have have finally come to, which is both exciting and scary. Uh, I
1: now believe that anything a human can learn, a machine can learn better. So what for you is the cutting edge? I mean, there are things that we see every day here where our computers are starting to get spookily good at things. And Google Now, for me, I think is the sort of um, the tip of the iceberg where it suggests things to you and it's sometimes quite... Uncanny way. Are there other examples that are yeah, right here, thing, right now, that we can the, see?
3: The, the thing that shook me up was the uh, uh, <laughs> actually the uh, example that appeared in the Cambridge Engineering Lab of a program that learns how to ride a unicycle, and it does so without knowing any physics, any differential equations. It does it very much like a human. It goes on top of the, it gets on top of the uh, unicycle, and the first thing that happens, it falls over. Mm. Uh, and it says, bad thing, you know, I want to stay up and does something random, and very quickly figures out uh, how to ride a unicycle. Now, the reason why I was so impressed by that is because I always felt this is something that we as humans are spectacularly good at, and no computer uh, learns how to ride a bicycle faster than we do. Well, here
1: we've got an example where they do. Martha, that's quite scary, isn't it? What does that mean as far as preparing people for a world where this kind of thing is possible where computers can do everything. What skills do they need? Do we need humans anymore? What are we going to do?
2: Well, I'm struck sitting here. I'm really not sure I like being the voice of doom. I'm not in a voice of doom thing, but you know, there are still 4 billion people who are not connected to the internet and have never used it. Never used it. 4 billion, right? And that strikes me as the interesting thing listening to everybody here is I don't disagree with anybody, but I do have mm. a big, healthy, massive Kind of dose of pessimism around it just happening to those other four billion, so I wonder whether we will be living in a future where there are a whole bunch of people whose computers can ride unicycles and a whole bunch of people who still really are not part of this revolution, and they will you know need to be brought up the continually brought up the curve so i'm not sure it's about skills or no skills, I think it's just about this constant adaptation that we as human beings are going to need to do to remain as inclusive as we are at the moment, which may be very, very difficult.
1: What do we do about that, Mo? Because you have extended access, but um, are there people f- pushing hard enough to extend Internet access to the rest of the world? We have Facebook and Google doing it, but they're obviously doing it in a rather self-interested no, way. No,
4: they are not doing it, actually. They're uh, making a noise about no, doing no. it. Who's there, doing we, it? We, do we had a go at them over this issue. I mean, mm-hmm. there is a company called O3B. Yep. O3B the other three billion, which is putting... Uh, Satellite low flying satellite, you know, over Africa and Asia, etc. We invested in that, and uh, Google invested five million dollars only. You know, is
1: satellite the answer uh, though? Because
4: you haven't really got the capacity. What about 4G? Is, there's there? quite quite a number of them. It, it's just meant to reach the parts where it is. Yeah, uh, there's quite a number of these <laughs> 20 satellites actually. It started service already, so people are trying. I I have an issue with Google and because they're going for the low hanging fruits and uh, courtesy of the incumbents. But
1: you've yeah. also got things like Facebook subsidizing access to the Internet on phones as long as you use Facebook. So they yeah. can say, oh, look at us, we're extending access to the Internet, but it's only to their bit of the Internet. That's a bit worrying, isn't right. it? Right,
4: but you see, sometimes, I, I gave an example, when we put the mobi- mobility layer, and uh, we could not, we did not find the uh, under layer of, of the basic tech. We had to put ourselves. Actually, Google, Microsoft, they're not doing that they they, 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 you know, they just, uh, just building off, on top of the foundation. On top of everything, exactly. Right. So we say, okay, why don't you invest in, uh, in infrastructure, actually? They are not investing in it, unfortunately. This is a big discussion we're having with them. But uh, I'm really concerned, just to follow on, on what's been said, I think uh, intelligent machines are coming. There's no doubt about it. Yes, they are all examples of of hitches, but this is a teething problems, like in any other technology and anything we developed in the past had hitches at the beginning. They are coming. What worries me is that we are not really started yet the process of thinking of what kind of world we're going to live in in thirty or forty years from now. Yes. a lot of things are happening. We have now measured inequality growing up in our society. Yeah, and money starts to make money and some people started to be pushed down. All the growth, in, you know, even in the United States, all the growth in the United States in the last 30 years uh, actually went to the top 1%. Middle class got nothing. Uh, forget about the poor people, nobody cares about that, but unfortunately. This is the Piketty world you're uh, talking about. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the guy is right. He has the data to prove it. Uh, so what is going to, as we accelerate this process, it has to happen and we're going to lose jobs. There's no question about it. Where the jobs in the future going to come from? Nobody's talking about that. When We are going to end up with a small group of elite who had the right education, the right skills, who can invent these machines, operate these machines, work with these machines. And uh, then the rest of the population, which is... I don't know, serving tea or coffee, even that can be served by machines. Uh, what, what are we gonna end up having in, in our society? How, what will happen to alienated people? Uh, how many people will be alienated? What? I, I think we need to think of how as a society, as human beings, we're gonna cope with that. It's not just rushing and, and, and we say, okay, it's gonna all be wonderful and fine, and you know, I, 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 I think that poses a real existential question. For the human beings, where are we going to?
1: What do you think we can do about that? Because technologists say that's not my my, my problem. My job is to just invent things, and you know this, this the social consequences uh, someone else's problem to sort out. What should we be doing to respond to that? I
4: really suggest, given the time, I, I was a member of uh, a commission called the Commission for Future Generation, uh, chaired by Pascal Lamy at uh, uh, Martin. Oxford uh, Oh yeah, school. the Oxford
1: Martin. So these are the guys who say that 47% of current need, U.S. jobs can right, be done by I, machines.
4: I, yeah. I suggest people just download the report there. Yeah, it's amazing. Two years about it, and we, the title of the report is now for the long term, and people need to start to think now for the long term. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have this so-called poverty of politics now. All our political leaders, and I'm not talking only about Britain, but everywhere, people just worry about what the tabloid. Headlines mm-hmm. tomorrow morning. It's not nobody, long-term nobody is thinking yeah. long term. It's, it's a poverty of politics, unfortunately. The rabbit cycles of elections, and it's, 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 we are all the poorer for that. Yeah. I think we need to, to change the way we. So I'm I'm worried.
1: Okay, putting my historian's hat on, and this is also what the Economist has said about this. What, the last time we went through a big transition like this was the Industrial Revolution. So most people going from most people being in agriculture to most people not being in ag- yes. agriculture. What did we see there? We saw a massive policy response from governments <coughs> by yes. introducing things like universal education. This is just as big a shift and it's going to happen much more quickly. It's going to happen within some people's working lifetimes. So we're going to need a shift, a policy shift, on the order of what we saw uh, with things like uh, you know, children not working and actually going to school and having universal literacy. Where,
4: where are the long planning committees? Yeah, where this the country used to have a long planning like committee. It's gone. Yeah. Who is thinking for the Nobody. They're all concerned about the next election. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: uh, Eek. Okay, James, I've got to um, come to you finally. It's 2024. It's 10 years from now. The Science Museum wants to add a seventh section to the information age. They ring you up and go, you're the man to do it. You have the historical view of these things. What will it contain, do you think? And what stories do you think we will we'll be telling about what comes
5: next? It might not be in a building Ah. Might uh, okay. it I mean it might it might have vanished but <laughs> well, that it takes. Eth- eth- ethereal thing oh, no no that's that 's really an, an unfair question'm so it 's un- unfair because one thing I believe is that when any of us make predictions about the future <laughs> we 're really describing the present, even even science fiction writers'm yep. um, there i 'm um, tr- still trying to absorb the lessons i 'm learning from my right here, and one of them is is to be cautious about saying anything too optimistic about the future. Because, because uh, I felt that Herman was glancing at me when he was talking about how pathetically inefficient the American healthcare system is. You, that's <laughs> your fault, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the I, nearest American and I, uh, late uh, <laughs> and, and Mo is right that, that dreadful things have been happening in mm. the, re, the redistribution of income upwards in the United States over the past generation and, and um, and it's, it's no comfort to me that it's almost as bad here. Right. Um, and all of those things are problems. And I wish I had some idea of whether the invention of cyberspace and the globalization of our consciousnesses are are going to create a new kind of, I don't want to say political awareness, I want to say common ability to cope with these crises. I, I hope th- so, but I don't know. There are some signs of it, but on the other hand... It- it's very hard to say. The, the one thing I do want to say is that I'm not as worried as some of the people on the panel about the machines taking over or, or the machines becoming intelligent. You're even, more worried about the people. Independent of us. I, I think that what we should be aware of is the extent to which we are right now becoming hybrids. Mm-hmm. We are using this technology in a prosthetic way. Not, and not just you know, trivially, we're, you know, we may or may not start wearing Google Glass or or using the Apple Watch, but right now just about everybody in this room has a device in his or her pocket that connects us to a global memory. It is now a thing of the past to have to, I'm sorry to say it, go to a museum (coughs) to, to see ancient artifacts or Remember what film Kevin Bacon was in. Exactly. When you, when you, when you look at a, a movie from ten years ago and everybody is sitting around at a dinner party having an argument about whether that was Kevin Bacon in the movie... Not anymore, they don't. Yep. Yes, you see, okay, yep. why, are they, why are they wasting their time? Yep.
1: Okay, so uh, on that blend of somewhat uh, muted optimism... Incoherent optimism. Uh, no, 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 I think <laughs> I, I've been struck by... I've been struck by actually how, how uh, for a, a panel of people who have achieved great things with technology, um, how uh, concerned you are about uh, a, a range of things. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say gloomy, but there is certainly a, um, a, a mixture of uh, optimism and pessimism there. But on that note, I'd like to hand us back
0: to Roger. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for this really brilliant, sparkling, informative overview of the future and the past of the information age. Give them a quick hand of applause, please. <laughs> um, a couple of... Quick things to point out. Please do go and see the gallery when it opens up tomorrow. Uh, I should say a big thanks to all our sponsors. Thank you to The Guardian for being a media sponsor. If you can't make um, the gallery immediately, there is this beautiful book produced by Scala. Most of the panel have contributed to it, so have people like David Attenborough, the brilliant Tilly Blythe, who's sitting just there, edited it. There will be a signing just downstairs, so please rush and buy your copy. And... uh, on that note, I should say thank you for being a brilliant audience. I'm sorry that we ran over ever so slightly. And once again, give these dazzling panellists a big hand of applause. Thank you. Thank you.